I'm going to be honest. If I needed to follow up, do you know how honey works? I don't have a next step. I don't know how to go deeper on that joke. Well, yeah, honey no. Is, how does honey work? Honey comes from... It's yeah. bee vomit. I don't know. You said that was such a grin on your face that confuses the heck out of me. Uh, not spit, but vomit. Because it's so gross. And I never yeah. thought about that. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about if we should allow honey in our sugar competition... And uh, they're like, well, it's natural. They're like, it's bee vomit. And I was like, hold on. Mm. <laughs> I was like, Back up there. Is it spit or vomit? Now mm. I need to know. I never actually Googled. I distrusted. We're doing uh, really good about staying on track. Left. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not derailing us at all. Ruby on derails. Ruby on derails. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot trying to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Steph, how are you? I am great. It, uh, it's been an interesting week with some stuff that I've run into. To quote Charles Dickens, it was the best of times <laughs> and it was the worst of times. <laughs> wow, going literary on us. All right. So we've got some emotional uh, roller coasters in there. But starting on the high note and before I dive into the more complicated stuff, It was a great week because I've been pairing my heart out. Mm. So every day this week, I've been in pretty much full pair mode where I've been pairing with someone, the same person, I want to say at least like five hours each day uh, with with breaks and stuff, of course. But we've been starting in the morning, pausing for stand up, going again, pausing for lunch and then pairing again in the afternoon. And it's been great. Uh, But it's also like I realized how draining it is. And I, I think we've talked about this before. But halfway through the week on Wednesday, I realized how exhausted I was. And I just thought to myself, I was like, am I am I sick? Like, what's why am I so tired? And I, I think it's related to just the fact that collaborating with someone that much for those many days is just that different of an experience where it was it was kind of making me tired. But also leaves me really happy. Like, I feel really great about each day's accomplishment and also knowing that someone else has insight into what's being worked on. So that part was great. Yeah, pairing does have that exhausting but rewarding. Like I, I can't think of a time where I've left a pairing day and been like, that was awful. Mm-hmm. I've had personal days where I'm working on my own and been like, oh, God, I just, I just got nothing done. And mm-hmm. I just hit this bug and then I couldn't solve it and I tried this other thing and that didn't work and get to the end of the day and I'm just frustrated and that's what I'm leaving on. I cannot think of a time where pairing for even a half of the day that I've left in that mode. It's always a positive outcome in, in my mind, but it is the draining thing that you're talking about. It's, that, that feels true. Yeah, I think if anything, pairing has prevented me from having those days because we definitely had some pairing sessions where we felt like we were chasing down certain details that was related to our work, but not directly, but we still needed to have some answers. So if anything, having a pair is what kind of kept us on track. And then if we did get into something thorny, there was someone else there to recognize that it was thorny versus if I were by myself, I would have thought, man, I just, I wasted a day. Mm. But if I'm pairing with someone, I'm pretty positive. I did not waste any of that time because I had someone there with me and we both acknowledged that this was important and worth looking into and then finding the answer or how to move forward. So yeah, I I think it prevents me from having those like, man, I I feel like I just wasted part of my day like chasing this one thing. And uh, it was remote pairing as well, yes? Oh yeah, it was remote pairing. So the person doesn't live in Boston and that might be an additional challenge as well because if I have someone next to me, 
I feel like they can very much see like my body language and sense tone and having a remote pairing. I feel like I am putting in an extra effort to make sure that we have cameras turned on, we can see each other. So we have more insight into what the person's thinking. If they're quiet, because they're thinking about something, we lose connection. If that's why they're quiet. That's a different quiet that's reason. A different, yeah, a different quiet. When we were using tuple uh, for the pairing, and that went pretty well. There's still a couple moments where we had some troubles with it. But overall, tuple is has been my go to for remote pairing. So Tuple is it's running on one person's machine and then you have essentially like a remote video and your mouse passes through and whatnot. And it's basically a live screen share sort of thing as opposed to teammate or other things where it's sharing the code. Is that accurate? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. We can see everything that's on my screen versus being confined to a particular space. Have you alternated who's hosting the Tuple session? We have, yeah. Okay. It was mostly me that was driving. I am the new person to the team. So this person uh, felt very invested in making sure that I felt comfortable and that I was up and running and even said the kind words that they want me to feel like I'm a product owner and mm. that I have confidence in this code base and feel free to make changes and move around. So I have been doing most of the typing, but we did have several sessions where we'd go back and forth if they wanted to show something to me or if they needed to type on my screen, then we can do that too. Oh, but you've been hosting all of the sessions and they've just been driving through your machine as opposed to like being in their dev tools and their editor and things like that. It's been mostly I'm hosting and I'm driving. Yeah. Gotcha. And then every now and then we'll switch to if they need to share their screen for some reason because they just need to, to show something. That also sounds like it would add to the tiringness then like home court and you're doing all the driving and you don't get to rest and you still need to communicate out loud about all the things that you're thinking. That's a lot. You know, that's a good point. That might be part of it, too, because I want to make sure if I'm driving, I've got two responsibilities in my mind. One of them is because I'm thinking through and contributing. And then the other one is I want to make sure the other person has a voice, even if they're not driving. So I'll have a thought and I want to do it, but they'll say something. So I pause and put my thought on the shelf and then I'll type out whatever it was they were interested in seeing because they can't test whatever it is that they want to test out. They mm -hmm. have to have me do it for them. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Maybe that was what was also adding to just feel like extra energy that's being spent. I know when I've paired for extended periods of time, I'll often find myself, my brain's just starting to get fuzzy. And I'll say something to that effect, like, I'm starting to lose the thread of what we're doing here. Do you mind? And I'll just slide the keyboard over in front of them and be like, can you for a while? Because <laughs> uh, I definitely find that there's a period of time that I can maintain that level of focus and, and concentration. But then it's easier to just sort of step back and let things go and, and observe them a little more passively. But that active doing, driving the whole time, yeah, that's going to, that'll, that'll make you tired. Yeah. So we, you're probably not sick. No, I, I think the good news is I'm not sick. <laughs> Just lots of collaboration going on. And we definitely... <laughs> collaboration all, often feels like sickness. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely had those moments at, like where we hit like 4, 35 o'clock where things got silly, mm -hmm. which was fun. But we, we definitely knew when we hit that moment, that threshold, it's like, well, I think we've reached the point today that we're done. That's been the highlight of my week is getting to work so closely with someone each day because that always just makes me happy. So, yeah, I have another thing I can dive into, but it's a little more technical. So before mm. I go there, how's your week going? My week is going well. It was a it was a complicated one. I was working on some difficult things at my new client rotation. Uh, perhaps we'll loop back to those. But on the positive side, I have a new keyboard. <sighs> 
<laughs> yep, you did keyboard. it. You finally uh, convinced me, and I bought a keyboard, and it's fantastic, and I love it. Yay, I need details. It is a Leopold, which I believe you have one of those, but you have the Toper fancy switches. I went with the more traditional Cherry Browns, Cherry MX Browns. Those are sort of the middle of the road switch in my mind. Uh, the code keyboard that you and I had been using for a while was Cherry Browns. They're great. They're not too loud. I'm still not sure if I'll be able to use them in the home environment safely. But for the office, the pod that I'm sitting at right now, four of the five of us have mechanical keyboards. Uh, and I think I'm probably the quietest of them. So yeah, I feel fine in the office. Joel, uh, one of the other developers here in the Boston office, just joined our pod, but he came over with a regular keyboard. <laughs> and I feel like he's just looking around. He's like, do I, do I have to? get one of those and it's important that the answer is yes (laughs) it's important that we don't have a mob mentality but i'm super happy with it it's actually the one that i have now is my favorite of all of the ones that i have tried so that worked out well nice yeah i feel like the brown switches are the goldilocks of the switches Mm -hmm. where the blues are louder the browns are like right in the middle and there's some other ones that i really haven't delved into you can also have clears and silvers and reds reds oh that's right did we say greens yet no, we didn't There's say most greens. of the colors, I think. There's like nine of them. So. Yeah. My understanding is the red's more for gaming because it's a very like it's very easy to press down on the switch before it activates, so it's very fast. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a little softer, but you don't have that same tactile feedback as the browns. So I the like browns the tactile feedback. Yeah. Yeah. The browns has a tactile feedback, but it's a little quieter than the blues. So have you noticed how this is just like blown up around us mm. in our office? I feel like like you said, you're at a pod that Four out of five yeah. people have a mechanical keyboard. That's and just looking around all, many of the other folks in the office now, it might be a majority of the desks in the office have at least one, if not three, mechanical keyboards on them, which, you know, we're riding that hype train. It's fun. Um, <laughs> it is interesting because when I think about my desk, specifically at ThoughtBot, because we end up moving desks often, there's very little decoration or other stuff. I have a monitor that I don't even really consider mine. I have my laptop and a laptop stand, and I jealously guard that thing, although I don't care about the specific one. I just care about having a laptop stand. That's it. Like the keyboard is the only interesting thing on my desk at this point. Uh, I don't even have a picture of my wife or anything, so I could maybe bring in one of those. But, you know, the stuff that normal people have on their desks. (laughs) I agree. Mine's the same way. We're desk nomads, like where we just move around so much that I really don't. We have bins that we can have like under our desk if we need to keep some stuff and move that around. (laughs) I do have a bin with random things that I've collected over the years. Somehow that's not the same sort of... This is my collection of desk trolls or whatever. So yeah, my keyboard's my one accessory for my desk. I think it's the best type of accessory. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Minus a picture of your wife. That's first. That would be great. Yeah, yeah I should get one of those. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the mechanical <laughs> keyboard accessory. <laughs> but it's interesting. I actually had it delivered to my house first. And so I tried it out at home and it didn't work ergonomically. So it's interesting. The little, like, very flat, low-profile Apple keyboards work on basically any desk for me because I can kind of just lay my arms on there. And then because they're not tall, I don't need to break my wrists upward. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I'm concerned about for RSI and for just general comfort and ergonomics. But with this keyboard, because it is a good bit higher, it stands like an inch or so off the desk where I would actually start typing. I need to have some sort of wrist level thing to sit on. But then the desk that I have at home is actually a good bit thicker than the one that I have at the office. And so the like relative height of my chair to the desk, to the underside of the desk, to the top, it just wasn't quite working. And I was very sad when I got it because I was like, oh, no. 
do I hate this keyboard? And then I brought it to the ThoughtBot office where we have very thin sort of particle board type desks. They're great desks, but they're very thin and that actually works out really well for this. So I've absolutely loved it at the ThoughtBot office, but I think I'm going to bring it home over the weekend and try it out there again because I would love to have a matching set and have, you know, I pretty much always type on this fancy type of keyboard. But who knows? Do you know what type of layout that you have? I don't know the specific name. I do not have the 10-key number pad. So I have the full arrow key section, page, up, down, insert, delete those extra keys, but I don't have the number pad. Okay, cool. Yeah, one of the more compact layouts. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited you joined the club. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for leading the way and for letting me try many of the variants that you've purchased along the way. And uh, it took me a while to get here, but I'm very happy with having arrived. You know what warms my heart the most about this adventure into mechanical keyboards is now when someone in ThoughtBot gets a new mechanical keyboard or even on Twitter, people will reach out to me or they'll come up to me like, hey, I have a new keyboard because they know I'll be excited for them and very interested. So that's a lot of fun. So keep sending me mechanical keyboard pictures. I love it. Strong personal brand. (laughs) But yeah, so that is the strongly positive aspect of my week. Uh, Maybe we can dig into some of the other fun things. Everything's been good this week, but there's been some fun stuff. But uh, it sounded like you had some other adventures, the uh, worst of times, as you called them earlier. So what were those? Yeah, I say that just trying to make a pun (laughs) because it was very specific to a date time issue Mm. that I ran into. So I'm working on a feature that queries for records that were created within a specific date range. And it touches on an existing task that already does that, but I am updating the date range that it's using for looking for those records. And it's a bit confusing for two reasons. One of them is we're working with Elasticsearch, and that's not the confusing part. But what is confusing is conceptually thinking about the greater than and less than when looking for that date comparison. So I'm looking for records that were created two days ago back to like 20 days ago. So you have a relative time window sort of thing? I do, yeah. It's going to shift based on the time that we ask for two days ago to 20 days ago. And it's interesting in the sense that if I want from 20 days ago up to two days ago, then that means I want uh, records with a created at date that is greater than 20 days ago, but then less than the two days ago. And then the second part that was a bit confusing is uh, this is why I was pairing. We were both pretty certain that it was an exclusive range. That's how it was being treated because that's what we were passing into Elasticsearch is we were using the exclusionary fields instead of the inclusive. But when we were going through the test, that's not what our tests were telling us. So we decided to dive in and kind of go through like the world building stage where we needed to build up our test to really assert what we thought was happening is happening and then also provide documentation for the next person that's coming along. Because we even thought about leaving comments to help others be able to understand this. And then my heart is typically with, well, if it's a comment, it probably deserves like a test case. So and that's just a, a better way to document So we dove into writing a test. And what was tricky is when we wrote the test, we wanted to test that it was an exclusive range. So we created a record where the created at matched one of the exact boundaries. And it was the two days ago boundary. So we wrote the test, ran the test, expected that record to be excluded and not get returned to us, but it kept coming back to us. And that's the part we couldn't figure out. We're like, we're pretty sure this is supposed to be an exclusive range, but yet it's coming back to us. So our confidence is a bit shaken in how we think that we're reading this code. So a couple of things that we did in debugging is we first checked the record to make sure that the created at time did in fact match the two days ago time. We also called 2i on the value because I was curious to see if somehow didn't match as we expected it to. It's the exact same value down to the hour, minute, and second. 
So we're still not sure at that time. And then kind of like a Hail Mary, I was like, well, this is Elasticsearch. I need to see what Elasticsearch has stored because that's actually how we're looking for these values. So I figured out how to find the index value in Elasticsearch. And then I saw it. The created at had milliseconds in it. And that's what made me realize that when I was looking at those two date times and comparing them, they did match down to the hour, minute, and second. But I wasn't asking Rails to show me the milliseconds as well, but yet it was getting stored in Elasticsearch with the milliseconds. So technically, when it was going to Elasticsearch and it was saying, hey, give me any record with a created at that's less than this value, since I was creating that record first, and then we were calculating that date range, that cutoff date range, it was less than that value. So it was a very long journey to realize that milliseconds were the culprit. So a while back, you and I were troubleshooting something, and I immediately wanted to accuse Spring, Mm -hmm. because that's something that's just bitten me before. So I'm now adding milliseconds to that (laughs) list. (laughs) Spring and milliseconds. Steph's got a list. She's checking it twice. Spring and milliseconds. So I've learned two things from this. One of them is, if we're going to test an exact boundary, just freeze time. That seems like an always like safe, smart move to go with. Yep, that makes sense. And I think I just didn't start that way because I kind of wanted to see it. And then I advanced to that. I was more curious as to what I was missing about it. The other one is to use 2F. So I was calling 2 underscore I on the date time, which is uh, rounding up and including seconds. But if I had called 2F on it, I would have seen that there are also some milliseconds that may have hinted to me that perhaps milliseconds were at play. I don't actually know if that's true, but I'm saying this for my future self in case that comes in handy. You think you'll listen to this podcast episode the next time you run into? Where was that episode where I went through a tricky date time issue? Uh, No, I guess more for saying it out loud, hoping it'll stick. And then the other one is I think it's an unnecessary complexity that we are using a exclusive date time range because that's very specific to exclude like that exact time and move forward. That specific millisecond in this case. Yeah, exactly. I think we really just want a date exclusive range. And that would have been a bit easier to figure out. And it's also easier to reason about and communicate out to others who are also curious about when this is going to run and which records it's going to impact. So I think a couple of good things came out of it where we can make it simpler for the next person that's in this code. A question that I Mm -hmm. don't know how much time you spent with on this, and hopefully this doesn't complicate things, time zones. It's more of a word (laughs) than a question, but how do time zones play into this? Do they? I don't think so, because everything's UTC comparison, like the created at values being stored in UTC. And then when we're calculating the two days ago, or whichever value it is Mm -hmm. that we're using, that's also using UTC. So we're doing a same time zone to time zone comparison. But when we say two days ago, presumably there's some user that wants to see a report of events that happened in this time window. So for them, two days ago up to 30 days ago has a time zone reality that then can get coerced into UTC. But it's that layer time zones. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for us, this doesn't get shown to users. It's more that we want to do some sort of like system cleaning of these records. Like we have Mm -hmm. records that exist. In our case, we're doing something called auto signing. So we just want to mark those records. So it's more system-based and not necessarily like we need to care what time zone a user is in since a user's not involved in this process. So I still think it's not relevant, but maybe I'm missing a concern that you have. I feel like any time I've ever thought time zones weren't relevant, I was wrong. I've definitely gone through the same sort of like, well, I don't think and I don't. Th- and for these reasons, but I, a date is not a thing. 
a date and a place and time is a thing. And so when the system's doing this check, like it's different for someone on the East Coast than someone on the West Coast. So if we're doing the cleanup for one bias, the system in theory has a default time zone. And I assume that's actually what's at play here. But mm. I don't I don't know. This is just my like, oh, someone's talking about dates or times. Time zones are obviously going to make me angry here. This is um, your, your spring and time zones. Yeah. And I'm spring in milliseconds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm fine with spring as we've discussed. Okay. But <laughs> You're just time zones. Just time zones. So I think there is still validness to that concern and that when we calculate that cutoff time, the minimum and the maximum for those two boundaries, we still want to include time in a time zone because, like you said, date on its own isn't a concept. But then we can round to Mm -hmm. that date. And then we can use that date when we're querying for Elasticsearch. So that way we have dates instead of exact like millisecond times that we're trying to capture. And milliseconds are the enemy, as we've said. (sighs) In this case, they were like... You can be frustrated, and when you finally see the answer, you're, you just feel like you want to like slam your head with your palm and be like, oh, my goodness. But I was actually so excited because I kept feeling like I needed an answer. I needed mm-hmm. some something to confirm to me that the code was doing the right thing, but I was missing some important step. And so it was actually a huge relief to see the code's right. It is doing the correct thing. It is I who have the misunderstanding as to what exactly is happening so yeah, I was super excited. <laughs> I totally it. get that. I resonate completely with that idea of I want to believe that this is understandable and that hopefully it's just my lack of knowledge. The worst case in my mind is this is truly not a thing that humans can understand. And I can't make computers do stuff in that world. So I can't deal with that. That's not okay in my mind. But then there's the other level of I really hope Ruby's not broken because that would make me sad. Like a bug in Rails is, well, we can deal with that maybe. A bug in Ruby is worse. A bug in like the C compiler at a lower level, that's more terrifying. And there's all of these levels. But I really like the idea of, no, we can and should be able to understand the way our systems work. And when behavior is surprising or inconsistent or like we have flappy tests, I think that's a a common example. Like, I don't know, they just sometimes they pass, sometimes they fail. I really dislike that as an answer that we sometimes end up at because I want to be able to understand this. I want this to be deterministic and understandable. And so I appreciate very much that you hold that same ideal in mind. Yeah, well, that's the whole point of world building is we get to build each individual little universe. We get to construct the setup, we get to run it, and then we get to assert that an outcome was reached. So it's not helpful when those outcomes, well, I mean, it's helpful if we realize we're wrong about the world that we constructed, (laughs) but it's not helpful otherwise going forward if we think we understand and we're getting different values. And that's my other favorite part is going through something like this is then my pair and I, we both paused and we're like, okay, how can we prevent someone else from going Mm. through this? Because we sank a decent amount of time into first adding some test coverage to confirm our expectation and then digging into why our expectation wasn't passing. And I think that's why I came up with the idea of we maybe should back this out to be a date instead of being an exact date time, just because it's harder to reason and I don't believe it adds value. So it seems like a nice way to improve the path for the next person. It's interesting that you use the phrase, we sank a bunch of time, mm-hmm. which I think has a negative connotation. But I think it's quite possible to sink a bunch of time if you do nothing with the outcome. But it sounds like you tried to turn that around and it became an investment of time. And you made the system better or clearer or constrained it in a way that hopefully made it so that no one else needs to sink time into it in the future. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like that. You know, Leave it a little bit cleaner than you found it sort of thing. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Honey Badger. 
Honey Badger is a zero instrumentation, 360 degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Honey Badgers work on all of your favorite languages and frameworks, including Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, specifically React and Vue, Laravel, Elixir, and Phoenix. Honey Badger is different from other error trackers. They go beyond errors to give you full confidence in the health of your production systems. Their integrated exception, uptime, and cron slash service monitoring will save your bacon. Support tickets are quickly answered by the developers that built Honey Badger. They don't use bots or support teams consisting of non-developers. I do appreciate the idea that they have the developers that built Honey Badger actually doing the support tickets. There's a whole XKCD about this, like wanting to have that phone number so you can get directly to the developers, and it's just built into Honey Badger. Some of the best customer support service I received have been from developers directly because they just know the most about the system, and they also have the most empathy, and they ask great questions. So yeah, I agree. That's a really a really nice service. So to get your app up and running on Honey Badger, head over to their website, honeybadger.io, and let them know you heard about Honey Badger from the bike shed during sign-up. And thanks to Honey Badger for sponsoring today's episode. But yeah, so that was that was one of the interesting, just sort of like technical roller coasters that I went on. What's going on uh, with you and your work? Oh, a bunch of different things. I'm still, I would say, very much ramping into the project that I'm on. I've actually, the team that I was working with, uh, my role is transitioning. I'm moving from what was a team working on an internal design system component module type library. So that's roughly what I was doing for the first two weeks. But this week, I've transitioned over. And I'm working with one other developer from the client side on more infrastructure things. So we're trying to tackle some technical debt and fundamental issues, remove some libraries that we've maybe decided we want to move away from, upgrade some things that maybe need that, um, ideally refactor some architectural things, frankly, a bunch of stuff that I'm sort of terrified of, but I'm also really excited about because it's the foundational sort of change that ideally makes the work better for everyone else. So all that is the context, but there's one particular thing that stood out to me, which is a tool called Husky. Have you used Husky? Are you familiar with Husky? No, I love Huskies. But no, I'm not yes. familiar with Husky. <laughs> they are a wonderful type of dog, but... No, what's uh, what's Husky do? Uh, Husky is a utility that works in conjunction with Git, and you can tell, you can configure Husky to on commit or on push or on any number of Git-related hooks perform an action. And that action could be validate that everything conforms to prettier, or it can be run ESLint and make sure everything's clean in that form, or it can be TypeScript or whatever. You could say run the tests or anything like that. You can configure preconditions for certain Git actions. And I'm going to be honest, my first reaction to seeing my terminal light up when I went git commit was I felt some feelings. Uh, (laughs) Mostly I was surprised because I've heard of Husky before. I've not actually worked with it. This is the first time that it showed up in my terminal. And it was a surprise because I was doing git commit. That is a local command line executable that I control, that I'm in charge of. And it was doing something entirely surprising to me. It's actually, it's one of the sort of like animated command line utilities. So it's got a little progress bar and indicator and things. And it's just lighting up my terminal. I'm like, what's going on? So there was a surprise factor to start. Was it installed? Like you didn't realize it was installed or? I believe it configures itself through NPM post install hooks. Okay. So cloning the repository did not do it as far as I understand. Although that may not be true. I, I don't think Git hooks get installed when you clone a repository. Pretty sure of that. That feels like a security hole. But running yarn install or npm install can do whatever as side effects. And so in this case, I believe yarn install where Husky is one of the things, it will set up the hooks. And then there's a configuration file in the repository that says, here's what Husky should do. 
and you can tell it which hooks you want to run on. And so in this case, it's configured for commit. And this gets to an interesting workflow thing where I like my commits to be whatever. I use commits as very much like a checkpoint as I'm working along. I'm like, ah, oh, it's almost lunch. Commit, just whip whatever. And I value that as part of my workflow. Corollary to that would be rebasing and squashing and all that other stuff. I want to be able to manage my history down the road, but I do value that. And so this will actually block me from committing if I don't pass prettier or whatever it is, which oh, is wow. mostly fine because prettier happens on save in my editor. And so that's okay, but it it's just enough of like, oh, you're going to stop me from committing? I don't know that I like that. That's interesting. When you were talking about how it's kind of interrupting your workflow, that one also gives me pause the idea. Like I know I'm in a slightly broken state or I'm not in the ideal state, but mm-hmm. I still want to save it right. for a reason. But I'm prevented from saving until I fix it. It just feels like an, an extra layer of formality that I don't want in my work in progress yeah. flow. I often will use a git commit as a way to basically draw a line in the sand. And then everything that I do after that, I can I now have a reference point that I can compare it to. So it's less that this commit represents a good version of the code. It's this commit represents a version of the code that I want to be able to compare against. Mm-hmm. So I've got all of these ideas about how git should work locally. And then suddenly this thing shows up in my terminal. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay. And then I tried to talk myself down and just, you know, be easy. I actually deleted all of the hooks first, and then they reinstalled themselves, and I was like, all right, maybe I should just try this for a little while. And it's been fine, but it's still there, and it's still a thing that I'm very much questioning. So I want to come back to some of the stuff that Husky does, but you made me think of something that, if you don't mind, I kind of want to indulge and explore a bit more, because you'd mentioned that, what was the word you just said? Did you say it made you angry when you saw it? cantankerous, yelling at clouds. I don't know which word I used, but... <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. Because I was thinking about that recently because I, when I join a team and if there's a workflow that's very different than mine, I'd notice that sometimes I'll have that immediate reaction of where I get angry. And mm. I had to stop myself and ask me like, why am I angry about this right now? And I realize it's part of that whole idea of like change is hard. And I'm feeling a bit threatened in the sense that I'm having to change the ways in which I'm very comfortable and that I think are best to then try a different way of working. And it just it was very interesting to me that that actually provoked a sense of like anger. And it had that sort of like deeper self reflection of the fact that this is very hard, but it's very important to recognize why we're angry. So then we can also accept a new state and then try to see the merits of it and then reassess after using it. So sorry, I just had to go on that little journey. (laughs) No, I like it. I went through a very similar arc of feeling myself react pretty strongly to it and then be like, all right, I need to calm down. And not that I was like angry or yelling at anyone. I was just in the moment of mostly surprise. And then uh, like, you don't get to configure my Git and then deleted them. And then they came back and I was like, all right, I'll be fine with this. (laughs) I think there is something to the JavaScript ecosystem has a lot more variance in the shape of projects and the way testing gets set up and the way ESLint gets configured. There's just so many different pieces and it feels like it's less of a consistent thing. And so every JavaScript project that I go on to is a new adventure, is a new exploration. And there's so much novelty that I sort of want more sameness, more consistency. And so I think that's part of it. And when I think about most of the Rails projects that I've gone on to over the past many years, they felt very familiar. Uh, I think often they were informed by like FactoryBot and things like that. So in a certain sense, ThoughtBot had an outsized advantage in them feeling familiar. But still, I would say Rails broadly, like convention over configuration, leads to 
that sort of familiarity and that like, I know where to look to start with this app. I know it's configure outs. That's how requests come into this thing. And then I, I'll go to the controllers. I know that's how, you know, I can walk through this app in a very consistent way. And I've not found that with JavaScript applications and it spans out to the tooling as well. So it was an interesting exploration, but for now I'm just running with it. And uh, Cassidy Williams, one of her videos that she makes is specifically about JavaScript in ESLint. And it's like one side of it singing, oh, we like the same things. And everyone's like, I don't think we do. <laughs> uh, we can link to that one because it was fantastic. Yeah, she does such good ones. I've seen that one. Yeah. That one was really funny. Cool. I'd be interested in hearing more. I know one of my kind of fear might be a strong word, but something that I recognize that I want to make sure that all the tools that I become comfortable with to do my best work, I don't want to prevent me from embracing the novelty of something new Mm. and trying it out for the first time and then really giving it a fair chance to see if I enjoy it. And I don't mean this at all with Husky because that sounds interesting (laughs) as to what it's doing because I totally understand like why that feels so disruptive to what we're used to. But your feelings are just resonating strongly with me right now as I have also been going through that with some changes in my process where it's not what I'm accustomed to, but I want to make sure I just don't lose that ability to try something new and then to reevaluate later so I can sort of hold those reservations back and then come at it with fresh eyes and and then see how I feel afterwards. Because I may, I may find there's a whole new way to do something that I never would have considered before. So There's a subtle balance between experiment and routine and finding that right line of like how much new and novel should we be taking on at any given time. So I think that's definitely a part of this for me. But there's also an amount of this was forcing a workflow on me. And I think that's some of my like deeper resistance to it is, well, what if I were to choose when I run prettier, validate ESLint, et cetera. And then we also have CI. So we have a backstop and then I should be able to do this. And I guess I, I still do. And it's just a minute of flickering in my terminal and I can totally deal with it. But that aspect of it, that like forcing a workflow, like you shouldn't force me to use a particular editor. Like many people are using VS Code, some folks are using IntelliJ, some folks are using Vim. And ideally, as long as everyone's productive, that's fine. And I think that variety is good and being able to own your own tools and things like that. And this is forcing a process and a tool in a way that caught my attention. Are you able to opt out of it? I don't believe so. I think that's the other thing that like there might be a, a flag and things. And actually, I talked with John Schumann, uh, one of the ThoughtBot developers, as he has been working with Husky lately and was talking about some of the things that he really liked about it. And it was interesting because he was describing a few things. One, the usage that he's seen was not on pre-commit, but on pre-push. So feel free to commit as you want. Keep that workflow as it is. But you don't get to push up broken code. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting trade-off. I like that as a different way to view this whole thing. And it puts the check at a different boundary. Like my commits, my local commits, I'm, I want to do whatever I want with those. But when I'm pushing up to a shared space, granted, I still think of my feature branches as mine and I can mess around, but I like that better. And additionally, there's some nice things. You can actually opt out of it on like a per git commit basis. Just say no verify in the command line arguments and it will skip it. So it is possible to get past it. Say, I really need to commit this right now before I go to lunch because I'm heading out for the weekend after that and you know something like that. But still, yeah, it's interesting. But you have to now convince another tool to let you maintain your current creative workflow. And that yeah, can my feel creative stifling. workflow. That's that makes it sound. That makes me sound fancy. Sounds I like that. Fancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't harsh on my creative buzz. 
<laughs> but I can see the difference. Like we have more formal procedures around pushing up to CI and everything yeah. needs to run because that is a shared space. But everything that you're doing local, like you, I like the example you made of where we're not going to force someone to use a specific editor. We're going to say, you find the tooling that works best for you. And so I can absolutely see how that would feel invasive to now you have to work with this additional tool that you didn't opt into, but impacts your local flow that doesn't share a space with someone else. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to keep using it? What's the path forward? Ideally, I'll just keep using it and not have it be an issue. I am intrigued. Could I turn it off globally? Because I think that's an important feature for that tool to have. If there is someone who's more cantankerous than I and resists this at a top level, I'd love if there were like, just put this in your environment and then Husky won't run at all. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is a flag like that because it is surprising and somewhat invasive. But for me, I'll probably just be fine and run with it. But it is an interesting thing about how do we structure our tools and all of that. So we'll see how I continue with it, but it'll probably just be fine. That's almost certainly the outcome here. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if there's a flag as well, just because I know, uh, so Flipper has some kind of depending on who you are, you could call it fun. Uh, I call it fun, (laughs) but depending on other people's opinions, uh, that when you go and look at the Flipper queue, if it's empty, it will show a picture of, or I think it's a video of Taylor Swift singing Blank Space. Mm. And there are some individuals that are like, well, I'm showing this, I'm demoing it to somebody and this seems unprofessional and Mm -hmm. I just, I'm not comfortable with this. I'd rather not be there. So Flipper has a flag called fun that you can set defaults and then that's how you avoid having some of those fun features uh (laughs) which really i mean i hate three state bullions but now i really want like a fun equals 11 or something of that nature up to 11 yeah i'm just kidding no three state bullions not even for the joke but (laughs) but yeah i'd be intrigued too if husky has a way to or at least configure it to your workflow Mm -hmm. like even if you can't turn it off but you could configure it so you can't push to ci without certain commits or certain things running and passing my workflow is definitely turn it off (laughs) definitely (laughs) but also it'll be fun husky cuteness off I don't like fun. Export, I don't like fun equals true. But yeah, I think that's enough of me uh, rambling about command line utilities. What else is up in your world? Well, speaking of trying new strategies for how we have our workflow, uh, the code base that I'm working in uses let very heavily in RSpec. And ThoughtBot has a blog post or two that discusses the merits and the downfalls of using a let. And I think one of my primary reasons that I've had for not wanting to use let is I feel like it very much takes me out of the test scenario that then I have to go back up to the file to where something has been initialized or a value or a record has been created, but then is being used below in a scenario. So I have to like flip back and forth between reading down to the test and then going back up to the top to verify. Or there are several before hooks that are then altering the state of the records that have been created at the top. So it just feels like a lot of like confusion or indirection for me for the sake of conciseness in my test. And I still have the opinion with my test that I'm okay with them being verbose because I want them to be very explicit and self-documenting. And I want them to tell me a story. What is this world? What is the setup? I want to see all of it at once. And if I have to scroll down a little bit because we've extracted a function or something down below, that's totally cool. But for the most part, I want the meat of like the setup and then the execution and then the assertion all in the same block that I can read together. So I'm in a new code base that uses lots of lets. And I've had some fun conversations with the individual that I'm pairing with around using lets because they're also of the opinion where they're okay with them, but they don't feel strongly about them. 
And when we were talking about changing them up, then I had made this suggestion. It's like, well, it's an existing test. I'm typically not going to go out of my way to rewrite an existing test to use a style that I prefer, especially if it's not something that I've talked to the team about to figure out, do they have strong opinions about this? Are they okay with me introducing a different style? And so we opted that we're not going to change the existing files, but if there were a new spec that I were writing, I would choose to not use let. And initially, I went into it with the mindset of like, nope, this isn't great. I don't want to use these. It makes life harder. But then I self-evaluated and backed out. And I was like, well, I haven't really worked on a project that uses let's. I have always been around people that have strong opinions that don't use them. So I'm very accustomed to my style of not using them and what I like. I was like, what if I pretend that I don't have strong opinions about this and I just try it out? So I've been doing that. And I'm still of the opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I was just sitting here in rapt attention, waiting to see where we got at the end of this conversation. Where where do you think I landed? You are still of the opinion that you don't want to use let's. Yeah, Yeah. I'm still there. (laughs) I feel like you would have needed to couch it a little bit more and like prepare me if you were going to go the other direction. But (laughs) yeah, I enjoyed stepping back and trying the different approach to really because I I just want to make sure that this is my opinion and it's not an opinion that has just been influenced by everyone else that I've worked with. So kind of stepping back to try it again or to try it in this test, on uh, this code base was kind of fun just to, to remind myself, why is this painful? What is it about this that I don't like? What do others like about it? And I'm sure there's many reasons, but the most common reason I've seen is just making things more concise. And I think some people would encourage the idea that it could speed up your test if you're not recreating records in each setup. But I think overall, the main reason I've seen is uh, for conciseness. It's the idea that we're trying to dry up test. And that's typically the last place that I'm worried about some duplication. And I, I want everything to be very explicit for me. So that's been another challenge, along with just sort of like adapting to a different workflow, trying it out, and then validating my opinion. I had my own test. (laughs) I set up a Stephanie that had no strong opinions. (laughs) You built a second version of the world. Built a second version Uh, of the world. (laughs) I do think what you're describing of the like good faith effort to try a thing that is outside of your norms or comfort zone, that's fantastic. I'm very glad to hear you ended where you did on that. So what you're saying of the tests are the last place that I want to focus on drying things up, that definitely feels true. I want to be able to tell the story, particularly set up execution assertion. I feel like those should be clear, distinct, complete. But I think based on what you were just describing, I may differ from you a little bit in that I do like to do a little bit of extraction. Uh, I've definitely found cases where I need to refactor the system. And if we've truly just duplicated in terms of almost copy and pasting the same setup across many different tests, And I need to go change like, oh, no, now a user has many profiles instead of just one. Okay, go change this test, go change this test, go change this test. I do find that a little bit frustrating. I agree that I'm not terribly worried about duplication in tests, but I do want to avoid it if it feels like it's truly verbose. That said, I personally feel like extracting a method is just a fundamentally better way to do it. It's more explicit. They can take arguments. There isn't the weird implicit coupling where one let can reference another, and then you can have befores that implicitly modify Like, explicit is better than implicit. I use Ruby, but I believe the Zen of Python through and through. (laughs) And I actually just believe that. It's just a better way. It can have default arguments. It's like a method. It can do all the stuff. Why don't we just use methods for our test helper extraction? 
Yeah. Well, and I like the word that you said that you want your test to feel complete because mm-hmm. I, I agree. While I'm not looking to dry up my test, I am going to look for ways to improve the readability of it. Mm-hmm. So if there's some setup that I need to do that's important that it has to be done, but doesn't really highlight the thing that I'm testing, that's something that I'll look to abstract away. Maybe it's in the support directory if it's going to be shared with other tests. Maybe it's a method down below that has a nice name that highlights that it's being done, but the reader isn't distracted by it. So I agree with you there. Yeah, and it's just hard when there's a bunch of tests. And it is tough when you have to scroll all the way up to read each before block and then each let to then determine if something was changed, what record, what's the state of the value that you're actually working with. And I think one of the other things that I'm starting to notice is when I start to see lots of lets, I start to wonder if there's a smaller class that's in this class Mm. that's being tested. Because I start to wonder if the effort made to try to make this more concise and more dry is actually because we're testing too many things. So I've started using that just as perhaps a metric or like a little flag that's like, hey, maybe there's another small class. And I get so much joy from that. Like, do you ever notice like if you're looking at a big class and you you see a responsibility that you can cleanly pull out and test in isolation and then it cleans up your other tests? I get I get giddy from that. So you're in the right line of work. (laughs) I have found my calling. Yeah. So that's that's kind of neat, too. I think that's the biggest thing that came out of this is I, I know that I'm still not a fan of let's. I can work with them, but it's just not how I would choose to write my tests as I find them less clear. And then also I'm using them as kind of like a, a sign that perhaps there's just too much that's being tested. And that's why this file has gotten so large and there's a need to try to dry it up. So, yeah, it's been a fun week of time zones and Husky and using LET. <laughs> We're just both outside of our comfort zone, it seems, with we a few are, new tools. But trying to, to do it responsibly. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. To make it as easy as possible, we've included a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the Bike Shed listing in iTunes on your computer or phone. And from there, you can add your rating or review in less than a minute. If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.